From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Gorlott, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. This week, the United Nations Security Council made its first visit to Myanmar since a violent military-led campaign against Rohingya Muslims began. On today's show, we'll hear from Amnesty International's Matthew Wells about this crisis, which has displaced nearly 700,000 people. This very acute violence that's been perpetrated against them comes on the heels of what has been a whole system of persecution that's existed for a long time. You'll hear that conversation later on today's program. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I discuss the disbanding of the ETA in Spain and the mass public protests in Armenia that have paralyzed its capital. The protesters are claiming their one goal, and this is unusual, their one goal is to have this man named as prime minister. That's all coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grillat. Rebecca Cruz, let's talk about Spain. We've talked recently about Spain and, and particularly the uh, the movement in, in Catalonia to declare independence. They, they had this referendum. But interesting news out recently from that part of Spain, the Basque separatist group, ETA, which stands for, in English, in the translation, Basque Homeland and Freedom, which was set up in 1959. So it's been around for a long time. It was set up in response to the repressive regime of General Francisco Franco and has killed about 850 people ever since. But there's been a ceasefire since 2011, uh, and and now they've said they're disbanding. Uh, and so they've apologized to the victims that, uh, and their families. And so I'm wondering what's going on here, if it's obviously connected somehow to this uh, independence movement and, and in what way. And is this reflective in some way maybe of what we saw happen in Northern Ireland? Uh, yes and no, I guess is the answer to your questions there. Uh, if we think about Spain, and we can think about all parts of Europe, all parts of the world, you have different uh, nations, if you will, or different people that come together and are often put into a state. And that's certainly what happened with Spain uh, several hundred years ago. But Catalan is one area, and the Basque region is another area. This is in the north. It crosses Spain and, and some parts of France. And they were put under this guise of the state, and there was king and queen, and it's, it's developed further out. But they have a certain identity. And the Basques have a language that has no connection really to any other language. And they've got culture and background and those sorts of things, just as Catalan has their own uh, language. And actually, another region of Spain, uh, Galicia, is more connected, to, or they feel more connected to Portugal. So there's these nationalist movements within Spain that have existed for some time. Just as Catalan has kind of asserted this, the Basques have, they've not stepped back from asserting it, but the ETA has stepped back. The Basques have some power in the region. They are in parliament, and the president does rely on them to some extent. So they've started taking more of the political route as opposed to the more violent or perhaps what we call terrorist route, uh, which the ETA did for several years. So we could look at Ireland and see that as perhaps an example of, uh, of kind of going that the political route. So the fact that um, they've stepped away from this type of activity when it seems to be ramping up in other places. I mean, in, in, in Catalonia, like we, we've been discussing, it's ramping up there, you know, in other parts, nationalism kind of ramping up. And so, I mean, even in Northern Ireland, again, you know, we're seeing these kinds of, of interesting movements. So it's, it's 
interesting to me to see the Basques kind of pull back or, uh, you know, you just kind of have to wonder why and kind of what's going on here. I guess we'll find out. This is new. They're just talking about it. They're just, you know, making apologies. But well, It's a, it's a different it strategy, means. perhaps, a, a different strategy. And we'll see if that's effective or not, that they can have more pull in the political realm than in the other realm. And they hadn't been particularly effective here more recently. So perhaps that's part of it as well. All right. Well, we'll watch that in the future. Let's talk about Armenia, a country we don't talk about much. But, uh, you know, we often talk about protests around the world and, and um, mass demonstrations. They're happening everywhere. And Armenia is no exception. So there have been uh, really starting, I think, last fall, there have been some protests regarding corruption and political leaders that have been placed in in the the prime minister, you know, pushing back on some of the corruption charges, the oligarchy, basically, the the, the rich and powerful that basically run Armenia and so many other countries. So this week, the Armenians have come out in mass numbers, blocked roads. Ninety six percent of the roads of Yerevan are blocked. So the city is basically shut down. Um, It's led to the prime minister's resignation, but the protests have continued because the the protest leader, they expected him to be uh, elected as interim prime minister, and he wasn't. So this continues, again, this kind of pushback on uh, corrupt activities in Armenia. Tell us what's going on here. Well, as you said, this has been kind of brewing for a while, and it it does uh, root back to uh, corruption. The prime minister that you're speaking of that recently stepped down, he was actually president for uh, two five-year terms. And during the the end of that, he started putting more power into the prime minister role. And then eight days after leaving the presidency, or a week or so after leaving the presidency, he was then appointed prime minister. So he had essentially created more power for himself. uh, And this sparked all sorts of concerns about uh, if this, as you said, was an oligarch or if this is kind of returning to more of that authoritarianism uh, that we might have seen elsewhere. And so there were initial protests there and he did step down. And then this this guy that's uh, he's a member of parliament, not necessarily a very vocal one until these last couple of weeks, a former journalist, which is also interesting. Uh, He put his name out, was the only name for contention to to be named as interim prime minister and an eventual prime minister, they would hope. And he was voted no this week. And so he said on Wednesday, there should be a national day of protest. And that's what we've been seeing with the massive numbers that you mentioned. The, the pictures are really quite startling here at the airport. Uh, but it's blocked. peaceful, right? The, the, everything's yes. blocked, but very peaceful. In fact, the protesters have brought like strawberries. Yeah. They're, they're feeding people. They I mean, for it to be peaceful. This yeah. is important. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, but, yeah, they're they're looking for – they're actually – the protesters are claiming their one goal, and this is unusual, their one goal is to have this man named as prime minister. So that could be easily achieved. We'll see if it will be. All right. Well, paying attention to that. But, I mean, Nicaragua, Venezuela, India, they're, they're, these things are happening everywhere. And so it's a, it's a global phenomenon. All right, Rebecca, thanks for being here today. Thank you. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldviews section of KGOU.org or follow us on Twitter at WorldviewsKGOU and I'm at Suzette Gorillat. Next, we'll talk with human rights investigator Matt Wells about the ongoing Rohingya crisis in the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar. I'm Suzette Gorillat and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorillat, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Despite ample evidence, leaders of the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar deny involvement in violence against its Rohingya Muslim population. Today, we speak with Matt Wells of Amnesty International, whose job has been to witness, document, and verify what's happening in that country. Matt Wells, welcome to Worldviews. Thank you for having me. 
Well, let's see. You work for Amnesty International now, but your background, at least your educational background, um, was in history, psychology, and law. And then you've gotten off into human rights. You actually study and um, and engage on issues of mass human rights violations along the lines of atrocities, um, you know, horrible things like genocide. I was working with Human Rights Watch at the time of the uh, civil war in Cote d'Ivoire in 2010-2011. And through that, um, you know, documented uh, horrific abuses that were committed by both sides of that conflict. And, and with that really started down the path of developing a, a specialty in investigating uh, mass atrocity and, and particularly in situations of armed conflict. I worked in, in South Sudan, I worked in DR Congo, um, and most recently I focused uh, on Myanmar and the, the ongoing crisis related to the Rohingya Muslim population there. We've talked a lot about the Rohingya crisis on the show and, and so I, we're definitely going to get to that. But when you say that you, you've witnessed abuses, human rights abuses, I mean, what, what are you talking about? What are the things that you, you, you've been witnessing? Uh, what are the kinds of tools that these, you know, um, combatants in civil war are engaging in? So in, you know, in many of these places, um, uh, we're talking about, you know, civilians really being targeted by uh, armed groups on, on both sides. Um, and obviously depends very much on the, on the country, you know, what exactly um, is happening. But, you know, in many instances, I'm directly, you know, interviewing people who have um, been victims themselves to human rights abuses or who have directly witnessed often, a, you know, a family member um, who's been killed, um, who's been, you know, taken to detention and, and subjected to torture. Um, and so it's the work is often rooted in in speaking with uh, direct victims and witnesses to human rights violations that have taken place and coupling that with um, new technologies that help us really corroborate what we're hearing from witnesses from satellite imagery to photos and videos that we can verify um, in terms of what's happening in, in particular places. Um, and we can bring all of that together and then you know, present a, a really uh, tight picture of exactly what's happened and who is responsible for the violations. And when you say present that information, who are you presenting it to? Tell us about that step of gathering that information. What do you do with it? Who does it go to? You know, often there are kind of two different targets. There's a, a wider, more general audience who we want to be engaged on a particular issue, that we want to take interest in um, you know, major human rights uh, situations that are going on around the world. Uh, and then the other thing is, is you know, targeted advocacy with policymakers. Um, whether that's in Washington D.C. or in Brussels with the European Union, um, or you know in, in in London with the U.K. government, we uh, speak with, meet with, um, you know those who have the ability to influence governments around the world and try to force them to change the practices that are leading to these human rights violations. Um, I'm based in D.C., so I spend a lot of time, for example, doing advocacy with different parts of the U.S. government, um, again, particularly on Myanmar right now, trying to get them to do things like imposing targeted financial sanctions on um, military officials who were implicated in the atrocities against the Rohingya, or to impose an arms embargo on Myanmar. And so it's pushing for, for practical policy recommendations that we believe can um, um, reduce the human rights violations that are taking place and ultimately ensure accountability for the people who are responsible for them. You've written a piece about how all the civilians suffer. You've written quite a bit actually about uh, what you know civilians uh, experience, refugees. You mentioned that obviously civilians are the targets of a lot of this. Um, as, as far as like all the civilians suffer, 
you know, what else are we talking about here? Displacement, um, you know, having to flee. I mean, is this kind of a broader picture, not just suffering torture and, and you know, armed conflict, but actually like losing their homes? What What is the bigger picture there? So we take um, Myanmar, for example, and what's happening right now um, with the Rohingya Muslim population in, in Rakhine State in Myanmar. Um, what we've seen over the last seven months is the Myanmar military has really launched an attack on the population as a whole uh, in response to um, attacks that were carried out by, by an armed group. Um, they have gone into villages, often surrounded villages, uh, opened fire on men, women, and children as they flee. They have systematically burned down villages. We've documented more than 350 villages that have been totally or partially uh, destroyed in the last seven months. Um, and the results of this has been more than 670,000 people have been forced across the border into Bangladesh in the span of seven months. And if you just, you know, one specific example, um, during one of my first trips to Bangladesh back in September, which was right after this crisis broke out, uh, I interviewed a 12-year-old girl named Fatima. Uh, she had uh, been in a village in, in Myanmar where the military had surrounded it. She was at home with her family. As the soldiers came in, she ran out of her house. Um, she was with her father, her siblings. Um, soldiers opened fire from behind. Uh, she saw as her father was shot and killed. Um, she saw as her younger sister, a 10-year-old, was shot and killed. She herself uh, was shot uh, in the thigh. When I saw her, she still had um, the gunshot wound in her thigh. A neighbor had, had, had fortunately picked her up and carried her to a neighboring village and then ultimately on to, to, to Bangladesh. Um, but it's a story that I heard again and again in which in response to these attacks by an armed group, the, the Myanmar military you know, made no effort to distinguish between the actual attackers and the broader civilian population and instead launched an attack on the population as a whole um, through killing, through sexual violence against women and girls, and through the systematic burning of villages across this region. You're listening to my conversation with Matt Wells about attacks on Myanmar's Rohingya Muslims. Coming up, we'll try to understand the political realities and historical underpinnings of what the United Nations and the United States have called ethnic cleansing. I'm Suzette Gorlat, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlat, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Today, we hear from Amnesty International's Matthew Wells. He's worked to document the persecution of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar in hopes of prompting powerful countries like the United States to put pressure on the country's leaders. Give us some background here. Now that we've, we're, we're talking about the Rohingya crisis, but what is the, the backstory about why this is happening? You know, this is a population, the Rohingya, that has been subjected to really systemic discrimination for years um, in a way that, that we have said amounts to apartheid. Um, they have been denied the ability to move around. Um, they have to get specific travel authorization simply to move from village to village. They're denied access to education. They're denied access to health care. Um, people who fall sick or suffer injuries have to get permission from local authorities simply to go to the hospital. And even then, if they do get to the hospital, they're segregated there. There's a ward just for the Muslim population. Um, so what's happened over the last seven months, this, this very acute violence that's been perpetrated against them comes on the heels of what has been a, a whole system of persecution that's existed for a long time. Um, to the authorities in Myanmar, 
they are considered to be to be foreigners, to not actually be um, part of the fabric of the country, even though they have lived in this part of Myanmar for generations. Um, the Myanmar government considers them Bengali, um, that they are actually from, from Bangladesh as opposed to Myanmar, again, despite the fact that families have been there for generations. And so you have at this uh, a deep-seated uh, racism, really, that has been unlocked um, over the last year or two in particular by the rise of populism in Myanmar. You had a rise of, of really a, a Buddhist, nationalist, populist um, movement that has then helped fuel a lot of the suspicion and actually outright hatred towards um, the Rohingya population. But this is all, I think some of us are so shocked about this because Myanmar's leader she fought for democracy right. for so long. She was uh, imprisoned in her home. She was in, under house arrest. She too was uh, persecuted. She, you know, suffered great things. So how is this happening under her watch? I mean, she she's won the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. So how does that happen? You know, I think there are two key things here. One is she exercises no control over the military. Um, the military has complete power over um, its operations with no civilian oversight. There's no civilian oversight of uh, investigations, for example. So the military controls its own judicial processes, which has fed this complete impunity in Myanmar in which the military operates entirely above the law. And there's almost never any accountability, no matter how horrific um, the atrocities. And so on one hand, um, Aung San Suu Kyi does not control the military. And what we are seeing is a military-led campaign to drive the Rohingya out of the country. Now, the second thing, though, is that she has failed in terms of moral leadership. Even if she doesn't control the military, not only has she not said the right things, not only has she you know, not condemned the horrific atrocities, but her office has at times made things worse. Um, her spokesperson has you know, said things that, that border, border on, on hate speech or incitement. Um, they have blocked, uh, along with the military, humanitarian access to this part of Myanmar, um, making it difficult to get aid to the Rohingya who remain in the country. They blocked access to journalists, to human rights groups like our own. Um, and they have cracked down on journalists who report on the atrocities. There are two Reuters journalists who have been arrested, who uh, have been in detention since December for doing their work as journalists, for exposing a particular massacre, um, and you know the civilian government and Aung San Suu Kyi herself has has failed to do enough to even protect things like the freedom of the press and free expression in the country. Well, this obviously raises you know the responses. I mean, you mentioned the work that you do, the advocacy work, um, trying to you know establish some sort of practical action. I mean, obviously everything you're doing is largely coming from the outside, right? I mean, you, what are you going to do about uh, the leadership in, in Myanmar or the military in, in Myanmar, but there are powerful actors who can do something about this. And so you've also written other pieces about, you know, people that are afraid and forgotten. And it just, the, the Rohingya crisis really, really seems to um, underscore this notion of people that are forgotten, um, even though they're on the front pages and, and in, the, in the headlines. And we see the, the evidence, we see what's going on. So 
What has the response been? How confident are you that there's going to be much more response from, again, powerful actors elsewhere that can perhaps put some pressure on, on Myanmar, particularly on the military? You know, and how hopeful are you that that's going to actually happen in terms of any kind of way forward on this crisis? You know, there has been outcry around the world. There's been condemnation from governments around the world. But we haven't seen enough action. We haven't seen enough um, real consequences for the Myanmar military, for uh, the ethnic cleansing campaign that it's carried out. The U.S. government has imposed sanctions on a specific general in the Myanmar military who we and others have implicated for his role in leading a, a unit that has carried out a lot of this. Um, so that's, an, that's a positive first step, um, but it's nowhere near enough. Uh, we need additional targeted financial sanctions against senior military officials who are responsible for human rights violations. You know, there is uh, a bill that pushes for accountability, that pushes for additional sanctions, that demands that the Myanmar military reform before it gets the benefits of, of U.S. military engagement with it in the future. It is bipartisan. Uh, it was uh, the lead drafter is Senator McCain. Um, it has a number of both uh, Democratic and Republican co-sponsors uh, to the bill. But so far, it has not been brought to the floor of the Senate uh, for a vote. It would, in terms of U.S. leadership, um, go a long way towards starting to address the situation. It provides additional humanitarian funds for the refugees in Bangladesh and to begin to address this culture of impunity that exists in the Myanmar military and that underpins so many of these uh, atrocities that have been committed. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being here today and, and sharing. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to my conversation with Matthew Wells about Myanmar's military-led campaign against the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. The crisis has displaced some 700,000 people, killed tens of thousands, and left countless others scarred by human rights abuses. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, Caroline Halter edited this interview, and Sam Dupre produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Gorlott.